You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Didn't you coach Burt Reynolds? Yes, I did. Was he any good? He was a defensive back. I know. Was he any good? I said. 103.9 FM LI News Radio presents The Weekend Crunch with Errol Marks and Speedy Petey. Hello, Long Island, New York, and around the country. This is The Weekend Crouch. I'm your host, Daryl Marks. My co-host, Speedy Petey. Remember, you can listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network, brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Speedy Petey. What is up, my friends? Well, just trying to beat the heat just like everybody oh else dealing with God. this heat wave. Yeah, it is. The humidity out here is absolutely ridiculous. This is worse than Florida. I could only imagine what it is right now in Florida. It is hot, hot, hot. I'd rather fall asleep in a pool <laughs> than fall asleep in a bed right now. Well, you could fall asleep in any random place, as I've seen since I've known you. Yes, so. <laughs> I fall asleep all over the place. I know, but yeah, it's probably the worst since I moved here to start working with the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Probably the worst summer since I've moved here on Long Island, heat-wise, but also want to give a shout-out to my grandmother, who turned 80. Yes, 80 years old. What on, are you doing for her uh, We celebrated that last weekend, because my cousins are away this weekend. We were celebrating at their house, so officially turns 80. Congratulations, Grandma! Anyways... Congratulations, Grandma. So we will have a lot to talk about a little bit later in the show. We will be talking to former Chargers punter and Vikings punter, Darren Bennett, ex-two-time All-Pro punter, one of the better kickers and punters since the NFL started. He is one of those guys that stood out, especially with that big hit that he laid. So we'll be talking to Darren Bennett. He has got a tremendous amount of good stories. If you have never heard an interview with Darren Bennett. You have to listen to him come on the show. He is fantastic. We are going to get into Vince Scully passing away, one of the greatest voices, one of the greatest analytic minds in baseball history. We'll get into the Yankees' busy, busy trade deadline as the Yankees made quite a few moves. As you know, Ben Attendee going to the Yankees from Kansas City. The Yankees get their pitcher in Montez and added some relief pitching because they lost King for the season. So we'll get into that in just a few moments. The Padres made a tremendous amount of moves, adding Juan Soto to that unbelievable lineup. And they also added a little power in that lineup as well in Bell. So the MLB trade deadline is so much to talk about with that. We'll get into some football as Rankins from the New York Jets spoke out throughout the press this week saying that the Jets, he believes, will have the number one defense in football. So I will tell you why I think a little crazy, but I really do hope so. With some of the acquisitions that they made in the offseason, and Kawan Alexander is a guy that really stands out. Has been under Robert Sala over there with San Francisco. They added DJ Reed and Lincoln Tomlinson. All ex-San Francisco 49ers. The Hall of Fame game was Thursday, so football is now about to start. You know um, football season started when the Jaguars already got blown out. We'll get into some basketball conversation as the New York Knicks are still talking with the Utah Jazz, but now another team could be a third 
team in this trade talk for Donovan Mitchell, which would send Donovan Mitchell to the Knicks, and that is the Lakers. The Lakers are trying to get rid of Russell Westbrook's contract, so it's going to be very, very interesting to see what happens. I believe Donovan Mitchell will be traded before preseason starts for basketball. Danny Ainge is not just not giving him away, and the Knicks are not willing to give up seven first-round draft picks, and if they are willing to give up seven first-round draft picks, they don't want to get rid of Obi Toppin, Grimes, or Quigley. It's going to be very interesting to see what the Knicks do moving forward to land a superstar like Donovan Mitchell. We're also getting to the Brooklyn Nets as the Nets wanted to sit down with Kevin Durant's team. I don't know what's going on with Kevin Durant. I don't believe he'll be traded before the season starts. I think they'll wait until the trade deadline, see what they have with Ben Simmons and Kyrie Irving, but it just doesn't seem like there's any teams that are willing to give up as much as the Brooklyn Nets are going to want for Kevin Durant. It seems like it's a never-ending saga. We will also touch up with some crunch time as well. A lot to talk about, but first things first, it is saddened to talk about a special person like Vince Scully, one of the greatest voices in professional sports, a guy that stood out with the Brooklyn Dodgers and then the L.A. Dodgers, but just who he was as a man, a person that every analyst, every sports analyst wanted to be. For over 68 years as a broadcaster for the Dodgers, Vin Scully gave you his all. A person, not just a mind for baseball, a person that had a tremendous amount of passion in what he said, how he said it, and the way he brought it to baseball. Vin Scully had a great life. 94 years of life and a grandfather and kids and a tremendous life. And to live a life being around baseball as much as he was, it's just a sensational sensational story and he'll always be remembered. Not just with his voice, but who he was as a person on and off the field. There's not many people that could touch as many generations with his influence and his words than Vin Scully, both in the baseball community and, like you were saying, just across the industry as a whole. Brooklyn, the community there, baseball growing up huge in the 1940s, 1950s. A lot of our grandfathers and past generations grew up on hearing Vince Scully when he first started with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And again, it really grew the game over there of baseball. Then L.A. gets this new team, the L.A. Dodgers in 1958. Vince Scully's the voice of him since they start over there, since they have that upstart of California, West Coast baseball. And his broadcasting style was something that was very unique, too, at the time. Radio broadcasting was just coming in. TV broadcasting was very new at that time. And Vince Scully was one of those guys that wanted to just do it in his very own unique way. And the Dodgers let him do it. And that's a great thing for somebody like Vince Scully to really bring to the sport. And so many broadcasters that you hear on TV today, on radio today, learn from somebody like Vince Scully, an absolute icon, absolute legend in the sport of baseball and the sports broadcasting industry, and an even better man off the field as well. Powerful guy to a lot of people. One of the greatest voices in sports generation. He'll always be remembered as the voice of baseball. Vince Scully, 94 years. May he rest in peace. Shout out to his family, all his grandchildren, his kids, his wife. Everybody's saddened by his loss, but you always want to remember the greatness of who he was as a person and as a voice for professional baseball. Now I want to get into the New York Yankees. And a lot of people thought that the Yankees were going to sit still. They weren't going to make the moves. Everybody thought it was going to be the Mets, not the Yankees. But before the trade deadline, after the All-Star game, the Yankees made a move for Andrew Benatendi. I expected the Yankees to add some outfielding help. They added one of the better outfielders that were available. Andrew Benatendi from Kansas City, an All-Star. This is his first year as an All-Star. Had a sensational year 
going into the All-Star break, batting 321. He won a gold glove for the first time last year for the Kansas City Royals. So I think it was a good move for the Yankees. But a lot of people were worried because they lost out on the Luis Castilla sweepstakes. He goes to Seattle. Seattle gave up their farm. And the Yankees weren't willing to give up Dominguez or Volpe or Pariza. The Yankees didn't want to give up their top prospects. But as the trade deadline came closer, the Yankees were really looking at Frankie Montez. And they pulled the trigger. Adding him and Trevino was a fantastic move for the New York Yankees. They give themselves another power pitcher. And then, which was a shocker, they trade Jordan Montgomery to the St. Louis Cardinals and add Bader, a very good outfielder, a guy that can hit for average, also steal bases and do all the things that the Yankees are going to need because there was stories coming out that the Yankees were going to move Hicks, but that trade fell through. So the Yankees are really clustered out in the outfield when John Carlos Stanton comes back. The Yankees add another relief pitcher in Scott Efros, who's having a great season, a young pitcher. This was his rookie season as a 27-year-old, a guy that they have control of for next year, even when King comes back. So the Yankees, I would say the Yankees had the second best trade deadline moves out of all the teams in the major leagues. They had a theme when it came to the pitching, and that was the strikeouts. Scott Efros, one of the better strikeout rates among relief pitchers with over 10 strikeouts per game so far. And Frankie Montez, outside of the 2018 season, where he averaged six strikeouts per nine innings, every other year he's averaged nine and a half or better. This year, right now, at 9.4 strikeouts per nine innings. And people have made the lazy comparison, oh, Frankie Montez trade was bad because they traded for Sonny Gray, and that didn't work. They brought in Andrew Bailey, another ex-athletics pitcher. That didn't work. And they're comparing that kind of thing. They need strikeouts in Yankee Stadium and all those other American League East band boxes. And Montez definitely has that. One of the highest top 20 velocity guys since he's become a full-time starter. And a guy that still has very good stuff. Now, he's had some injury issues in his career. Came off a Tommy John surgery at the end of that 2018 season. But still, a guy that has been pretty durable besides that. And a guy that's still pretty young. Still a lot of upside. And the Yankees, with the way their rotation is built right now, he'll probably slot into the number two. And I think he'll make a big difference for this team for sure with his stuff. The way the Yankees positioned themselves, I think they've made a tremendous amount of moves. And Brian Cashman slam dunk. You say whatever you want about what Brian Cashman did going into the season. Nobody's arguing what they did at the trade deadline. Now, I think the Padres made the biggest splash, adding Juan Soto, adding Bell, two power hitters to that lineup from the Nationals. They gave away a ton of prospects. The Padres, who had the number one farm system in baseball, probably moved down to nine or ten after giving three of their top ten prospects. But I think the Padres wanted to make the move. They're ready to win now. They added Josh Hader, who's one of the best relief pitchers in baseball, if not the best relief pitcher in baseball. They gave up a couple of prospects to make that move. But they honestly, they didn't give up a lot for Josh Hader, for the talent that he is. So you got the best relief pitcher in all of baseball. You got one of the best hitters in baseball in Juan Soto. And then you add one of the better power bats, an all-star type of player this year who's batting over 300 and has great power numbers in Bell. I think the Padres absolutely slam dunk the trade deadline, Speedy. The Padres have watched the Dodgers for the last couple of years go after all these splashy names. Mookie Betts, Max Scherzer, Trey Turner, the list goes on and on. While they rebuilt, got some flashy guys on their own roster, signed Manny Machado, sure, but never as big of a splash as what you saw on Tuesday. They first go after Josh Hader the day before that. Josh Hader, who I think is the most valuable relief pitcher because he's not just a closer. He can pitch in so many different roles, so many different methods. He could stretch and go to 
two, three innings. He's a lefty that could face anybody. He has great stuff. I know he had a bad stretch, and that's rigging his ERA right now where it doesn't look as good, but that's only been the last two, three weeks. He's a guy that can pitch in so many different roles, and the Padres can use him for postseason strategy to take that next step forward. Bob Melvin now being their manager, and he's a guy that's been experienced, not great in the playoffs, but experienced, where he could definitely get the best out of him. And then Juan Soto and Josh Bell, that's insane for that lineup. They're going to get Tatis back probably within the next month or so to add to that postseason lineup. And their lineup, they've had their struggles at points this year, but now with these guys, there's not going to be a lot of guys you could just pitch around to be able to work with. So I think they become either the number one or number two fearsome team in the National League along with the Dodgers. They surpassed the Braves, they surpassed the Mets, and everyone else that was there. And then the third team that really stood out at the trade deadline were the Astros. Adding yeah. Trey Mancini, a first baseman who could play outfield, who gives them a little pop in that lineup. They gives them the first baseman that they really dreadfully needed. And then the catcher, Christian Vasquez from the Red Sox, who's had a sensational year. He's hitting for average, had a fantastic year. And then left-handed pitcher, Will Smith, who's a very good pitcher from the Braves. So I think they were the other team that really stood out, the third best team that stood out to the trade deadline. So I would say Padres one, Yankees two, and Houston Astros three. The Dodgers really didn't make any moves besides Joey Gallo. Nothing really that stood out. I think they wanted to stand pat where they are as a team. They're one of the better teams in the major leagues. And Milwaukee, I'm wondering what Milwaukee is doing. They traded away their best relief pitcher. I know they have a good bullpen. They're the number one team in their division. They're probably going to make the playoffs. Why would you give up your best relief pitcher in the middle of the season? It doesn't make any sense. And you didn't really get anything for him either. So it doesn't make any sense. I'm interested to see what Milwaukee is trying to do. I know they're trying to shed contracts. And I don't know if the Padres are going to be able to re-sign Hayter if they're going to give Juan Soto a contract. But it's crazy. They got the best relief pitcher in baseball, one of the top three hitters in baseball, and this year's one of the top power hitters in baseball in Josh Bell. So it's ridiculous where the Padres are. I'm definitely one of the favorites. A lot of people believe one of the favorites to win the whole thing. But the Mets, who a lot of people believe they were going to make the most moves, there was stories coming out that they offered a significant amount of pieces to the Nationals for Juan Soto. And I told everybody, and I'm going to say it again, and I don't care how mad Josh is or any Met fan is, There was no way Rizzo from the Nationals, the GM of the Nationals, was going to trade within the division. I said that over and over and over again. And I don't care what the Mets offer. Beatty, Alvarez, they could have added Pete Alonso in the trade. They weren't making that trade. They were not going to want to see Juan Soto 17 times a year. I know Mets fans were upset that they couldn't get Juan Soto. I know the Mets fans were upset that they didn't make any big splashes. They made some moves, not moves that really stood out. I still believe the Mets are one of the favorites of coming out of the National League because they still have a healthy Max Scherzer and hopefully a healthy Jacob DeGrom, Speedy. Well, that's the approach they're going to have to take at this point. They're going to have to be kind of old school when it comes to that because the Mets still lack some things. They got better with the power bats. Vogelbach has been a nice addition so far. Gotten on base in, I think, nine of the 16 games he's played with the Mets so far. Tyler Naquin's played well, but that's it. That's really all they did at the trade deadline. They last second trade for reliever Michael Givens, who's been up and down throughout his career, kind of like Adam Adovino. He's been pitched well this year so far, but still not anything that I would write home about. The biggest thing that makes me mad with the Mets, though, is the relief pitchers that they should have been targeting didn't even get traded. It's not like another team swooped in and stole them last second. Daniel Bard, who got extended by the Rockies, I don't know why, did not get traded. Andrew Chafin was another guy. Michael Fulmer got traded to the Twins, but besides that, a lot of the other relief pitchers that they were seeking outside of David Robertson did not actually get traded. So I feel like the Mets were kind of getting passive and maybe content with the fact that DeGrom was 
coming back. But in a modern baseball, when it comes to postseason strategy, you need more depth than that. And the Mets have only two left-handers on their entire roster of pitchers. David Peterson, who they're trying to move to their bullpen right now, and Joely Rodriguez wasn't pitched well for them this year. So that's another concern when it comes to playoff strategy, too. And good teams, good managers will be able to dissect that. And the four team that made the most moves that really stood out were the Philadelphia Phillies. I have no idea why they made a move for Noah Syndergaard. They're not making the playoffs. They dropped Didi Gregorius after the trade deadline. Noah Syndergaard is a free agent after this year. Why did they bring Noah in? Are they expected to make the playoffs? I don't think they're going to make the playoffs. David Robertson, who a lot of people wanted. David Robertson wanted to go to a team that was going to make the playoffs. Why would the Philadelphia Phillies, who right now, they're trailing so much behind the Mets and the Braves. They're not going to be a wild card team. They're not making the playoffs. Why would they make these moves when you're probably going to lose Noah Syndergaard in the offseason? David Robertson is going to be a free agent at the end of the season. What was the reason behind this? It doesn't make any sense. And I'm sure a lot of the fans are scratching their head. As good as Noah Syndergaard is and David Robertson is, it made no sense. A guy you're taking a flyer on and you're really going to trust the pitching coach staff over there that really hasn't done well with outside of Wheeler, those other starters, to do that kind of thing with Syndergaard. Good luck. David Robertson's second stint with the Phillies can't be any worse than the first one, but still. Yeah, definitely not something that you would trust. I would definitely still favor the Cardinals more in the wild card race than the Brewers if it came down to it in that National League. The Phillies are really the only other team on the outside looking in. They have a shot, but even so, yeah, I don't trust them. I have no understanding on why they made these moves at the trade deadline. Big mistake for the Philadelphia Phillies. When we come back, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to get into some football as Mr. Rankins, the defensive tackle of the New York Jets, speaks out telling the press that the New York Jets are going to have the best defense in all of football. When we come back, we'll get into that, and we'll get into everything that's going on as preseason is about to start in the NFL. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. As you know, this is the Weekend Crouch. I'm your host, Daryl Marks, my co-host, Speedy Petey. Remember, Killers on our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network. Brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Download the World Wide Sports Radio app by going to iOS, WWSRN, or Android World Wide Sports Radio Network. Why not the Jets being all over the tabloids? We're not surprised, as we remember the Jets of the 2000s, as Rex Ryan, who we called Sexy Rexy, had his own thoughts about the clown show they were. And I am a Jet fan, ladies and gentlemen. But am I upset that Rankin's the star defensive tackle for the New York Jets? And I say star because he was a star with the Mm -hmm. Saints. He just hasn't been the same player that he was. But hopefully with this year, with a pass rush, giving them a little bit more space, I think Rankin's and Quinton Williams are going to have sensational years on that defensive line. But he came out over the week and stated that he believes that this defense could be the best defense in all of the NFL. The interesting part of that saying is we don't know what this defense is. On paper, they've got some good players. C.J. Mosley, Kawan Alexander, Quinton Williams, Rankins, Carl Lawson, Jermaine Johnson, Sauce Gardner, and D.J. Reed, and guys that have been successful either in college or in the NFL. But to say that this is going to be the best defense in football, there's quite a few good defenses in the NFL. 
the LA Chargers, adding a big beast of a man, Khalil Mack and J.C. Jackson to that defense with Derwin James and Joey Bosa. That defense is just going to be absolutely sensational if they stay healthy. And the Broncos, a young defense that can get at you in so many different ways. New coach, offensive-minded coach, and Nathaniel Hackett. But I think this is going to be a very interesting year because even their own division. Now, the Patriots lost a lot of pieces, but we are talking about Bill Belichick, who is a defensive-minded coach, who likes to get at you, likes to bring up those defensive backs, and they might not really stand out without J.C. Jackson, but I think they're going to be fun to watch. The Buffalo Bills adding Von Miller in the offseason and some of the young players that they have. They added Elam in the draft. They're going to have a pretty good secondary as well, so there's a lot of good defenses. And then don't forget the NFC with the Rams and Donald Ramsey. There's a tremendous amount of good defenses, Speedy, in the NFL. Yeah, there's a lot to say that the Jets are going to be the best. Yeah, you mentioned the Rams. I would say the 49ers and the Saints are probably also in that mix of top NFC defenses. In the AFC, we didn't even talk about the North. You got a team like the Ravens. Yep. The Steelers now with Brian Flores definitely could be the in Browns. there. The Browns. The Browns. There's definitely a lot of them, but I don't mind Sheldon Rankin saying that either because you want to give your young players confidence. There are a lot of new players all at once, and if the Jets can stay healthy, you're still going to have a very complete, well-rounded defense, too. The Jets don't have any significant flaw now that they signed Kawan Alexander. A lot of people were concerned about the inside linebacker at the time. Maybe the only thing is maybe just a rangy, like a zone coverage type safety, but they have three other safeties that could be versatile. And Robert Sala's scheme, even with the 49ers, never really revolved around one free zone safety. So you're looking at a case where the Jets, with all the secondary depth they have now, with interior defensive line depth, including Sheldon Rankins, if he does stay healthy, they definitely could take the leap. I could see them being, if they stay healthy enough, a top 12 level defense. I think they're a top 10 defense. If they could stay healthy with the secondary they added in the offseason, I think they're going to be fun to watch. You're going to expect Robert Sala. He doesn't blitz. He likes to play a lot of man and press. I expect this defense to be a lot explosive this year than they were last year because they have Carl Lawson, Jermaine Johnson. They're going to see a lot of Quinton Williams up the middle that can get at the quarterback. So I think it's going to be fun. And then Kwan Alexander, you can use him in space. You can blitz him. You can do all different things. And we all know Robert Sala. He is a man that likes to use different packages, nickel packages in his defense, what he did in San Francisco. Right. So I expect this to be a fun, high-flying defense, but I don't know if they're going to be the number one defense. But again, nobody thought that Rex Ryan coming to the Jets the way he did and transformed that defense from number 19 to number two in the NFL. Now, Robert Sala, if he has the pieces that he has and he has the pass rushes that he has, I expect this defense to be much more explosive this year than they were last year. Deshaun Watson. And this story just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. This past week, the NFL came to an agreement to a six-game suspension. And now all of a sudden, the NFL doesn't like that. They want him to be out for the season or at least 12 games. And they want to fine him 8 to $10 million for the situation that he put himself into. Now, if I was Deshaun Watson, I wouldn't be very happy with the league. You sat back, you spoke to the league, you gave your statements, you were never convicted for a criminal case. Now, that doesn't mean that he was right for what he did or anything that he did behind closed door to be acceptable. Three criminal courts completely pushed any criminal activity away from the court system, which means he wasn't going to be convicted for any crime or criminal dispute. So why is the NFL trying to hurt this guy more? 
This is a problem that I've been saying about Roger Goodell and the owners of the league. If I was the lawyer of Deshaun Watson right now, what should I do? Should I countersue the NFL for putting a little bit more stress on my client? He will sit out for the six games. I told everybody he wasn't going to get more than six to eight games. Now, all of a sudden, the NFL don't like it because they've gotten a lot of bad press for this because Calvin Ridley, he bet on football. He's out for the season. And then the Tom Brady situation a couple of years ago with Deflategate. He got four games. Why is this guy who did all those bad things to these women, which has not been proven yet, why is this guy getting off with just six games? And the NFL's wrong on this. They should not be trying to look into this and give this guy 12 games, 8 to $10 million fines for nothing they have not proved. I don't feel bad for Deshaun Watson because he caused his own problem, but I feel bad for the situation because you sat, you waited for your suspension, you got your suspension, and now you're going to sit and now you're going to have to wait until the NFL is going to try to figure out how they can screw him even more. This continues to be one of the most unique cases, and it takes another twist now with the settlement idea you just mentioned. What the NFL did, 12 games, $8 million, $10 million fine, which Deshaun Watson inevitably rejected because Deshaun Watson is thinking the same way you are. Probably eight games is the merit of what the court cases have already done. Three different court cases now going to the Supreme Court, going to civil court. The list goes on and on. Three criminal courts. Right. And they all pushed it out of court. This is not really a case that you could compare to any of the other ones that the NFL has been referencing, which is making me believe that it's going to be very hard for them to win their appeal, this rejection of what the Sue L. Robinson ruling was. And I'm not here to justify anything Deshaun Watson did. I'm not I'm not Nobody saying. is. We know he's a bad kid. Yeah. He's in the wrong for everything he did and whatever ends up happening, I'm not going to root for him by any means. But the ruling is not going to be something that's concrete where the NFL could just compare it to any other case of this. Calvin Ridley is the one that's brought up because it happened recently, but also they use Tom Brady's as leverage. They use Ezekiel Elliott's domestic violence case as leverage. Ray Rice's domestic violence cases leverage to give them only the six games as being the bare minimum because the Supreme Court was saying that Deshaun Watson's actions were not found to be violent. Now, with all the settlements, it definitely could have been, but nothing that could be proven. So that's going to make it very difficult for the NFL to win this kind of push to get a full season. I think eventually it'll come down to a compromise. I don't know if the six games will stay, but it's not going to be something that the NFL is going to want when they want to suspend him for the whole season. And then the Miami Dolphins are a story, as always. Stephen Ross, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, is suspended for the full year. He cannot be in the stadium. He cannot watch his team play football for a full season because of tampering violations with Tom Brady last year and Sean Payton. And I'm not surprised because we all know who Stephen Ross is. He's a New York representative. He bought the Miami Dolphins. Yeah, they have other celebrity ownership too. (laughs) And he's always looking for that shiny piece of gold. And he wanted Tom Brady because Tom Brady was the big name that was available when he became a free agent from the Patriots. He did not land him. He decided to go to Tampa, and he won a Super Bowl over there. When you look at this situation, and Stephen Ross, Stephen Ross needs to keep himself away from that team. Every time you hear Stephen Ross's name being brought up, it just puts a bad cloud, dark cloud, over the Miami Dolphins, a young team that has a lot of good young talent. We look at instances in all sports, too, where we've seen ownership get in the way, and it's hurt so many teams. We talk about it all the times with the Knicks and James Dolan. The Knicks have started to progress better because James Dolan has stayed out of the way. The Mets now is changing ownership. The Wilpons always want to interfere everything. Steve Cohen likes to do it for the positive and spends money, and now they have free range to be able to do things. The NFL 
well, a lot of those teams haven't been able to just hang on because like you were saying before with Roger Goodell, him and the owners are very close. So you have all these corrupt owners, Stephen Ross, Dan Snyder, Jerry Jones that continue to get away with these things. And yes, Miami's always loved the flashy type moves. They always go for the big free agents, nice warm city. But has it worked for putting a product on the field? They haven't won a playoff game since 2003. So now they're trying Tom Brady. Okay, fine. You've played against him for all these years. Swing and miss. And Sean Payton now. So you lost the first and third round pick and maybe lost the chances of being able to get him again. And it just shows that the organization dysfunction will still reign supreme, even in what you thought of as getting talent. The Browns are going through the same kind of thing with Deshaun Watson. I think their roster is a top five roster, yet they still can't get out of their own way when it comes to team culture and dysfunction with ownership. And congratulations to Debo Samuel, getting a three-year, $71.5 million contract, $58.5 million guaranteed, well-deserved, a guy that's been beaten up, not only as a wide receiver, but as a running back over there in San Francisco. After somebody in Seattle getting his big-time contract, another wide receiver who I think is highly overrated. Debo Samuel is a guy that definitely deserved the money. Uh, 26-year-old kid who has been in the league for three years and has been dominant ever since he stepped on the field. So, shout-out to Debo Samuel. I'm so excited. The NFL has just started on Thursday. They had the first preseason game, Jacksonville and the Las Vegas Raiders. By the way, Las Vegas absolutely demolished the Jacksonville Jaguars. And this is what's going to happen for many, many weeks to come. And we didn't even see Trevor Lawrence. We saw a couple of decent players. Adams laid in one play. Jacobs made a couple of plays for the Las Vegas Raiders. But we didn't really see the players as much as we wanted to. But I don't believe this Jacksonville Jaguars team is going to be any good. But I'm very excited. The Jets and the Giants and football's about to start. They're starting to practice in pads and full preseason starts next week, so I'm very excited about that. When we come back, we will be talking to ex-NFL player, former Chargers and Vikings punter, Darren Bennett, here on the Weekend Crunch. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Weekend Crunch. I'm your host, Errol Marks. My co-host, Speedy PD. Remember, you can listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network, brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Download the World Wide Sports Radio app by going to iOS, WWSRN, or Android, World Wide Sports Radio Network. Well, I was very excited when Speedy told me we were going to get him on the show, a guy that has a tremendous amount of stories. We are now talking to former Charles. And Vikings punter, Darren Bennett. Darren, what's going on, bud? How are you guys? We are good, man. I like that accent too, man. Is that Australian? It started as an Australian accent, and I've been here 30 years now, and I'm still stuck with it. So (laughs) over the years, we've had so many Australians come and stay with us. I think we keep the accents. When we haven't had people come for a while, if I talk to my brother, my wife says I talk through my nose all the time. So (laughs) the longer I'm here and the more I'm in the Midwest here in Tulsa, I get a bit of a Midwest roll to it. But otherwise, yeah, it's an Australian accent. As everybody knows, we are talking to former Chargers and Vikings punter Darren Bennett. So Darren, when we get into your career, year a little bit and then we'll talk about your thoughts of what's going on with the Chargers, the Vikings teams that you played for and, and what's going on in the league. You're a guy that played a little bit of rugby in your time. Have a little bit of background of kicking. How did you start kicking a football? What made you decide that you should try out and play football? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to back you up a little bit. Okay. I played Australian rules football which mm. is not rugby. Totally different game. But the game that we play in the southern states of Australia is based on kicking and so we already have the 
those skills. I could kick probably 55, 60 yards when I was 11 years old. And so as my career progressed, I started to slow down in my mid-20s and I had a lot of knee surgeries. I'm actually sitting on a couch rehabbing a double knee replacement right now. Wow. So I had over my career of Aussie rules and NFL, I had 20 knee surgeries, <laughs> but I could still kick the hell out of a ball. And so my strength coach in Melbourne used to come across to training camp over at the Dolphins and he would go to the, the Cowboys and he goes, man, I'll tell you, he goes, you couldn't run to save yourself, but you could out punt these punters that are both on those teams right now. He said, so he arranged a tryout for me in San Diego and I won a, a long kick contest in Australia and used the winning prize was two tickets to Los Angeles. And so my wife and I used it as a honeymoon. And on the honeymoon, I got a tryout with the Chargers and they put me on practice squad in 94. And I went and stood on the sideline and watched San Francisco smash us in the Super Bowl. Consumption of the NFL with rugby and also, like you were mentioning, with Australian rules football in place. Like, what is it like in Australia when you were growing up watching the NFL and getting into the NFL? Yeah, so the NFL, now it's instant. We're in this instant gratification world so i can click on in australia any game at any time espn highlights when i was playing or when i was looking to do some research we had a replay of the top three games only highlights zero punts on a tuesday night three days after the game so i never saw a punt live on tv i never <laughs> saw it recorded on tv until i came over i sort of just went on my strength coaches say so and then i went to a seattle seahawks game when we were on our honeymoon and i watched the punters and i tried to work out what the distance was they were punting and whether i could punt that but i was very fortunate you know bobby Beathard's one of the greatest general managers in the history of the league. He's in the Hall of Fame. But for him to think outside the box and take an Australian straight off the boat, I had no idea how to put a helmet, shoulder pads, anything on. I hit some 80-yard punts on the field that day, and he saw some potential there, so he gave me a shot. It says over here you're six foot five, 235 pounds. You're a big man. Kickers are very big in the NFL now, but not tall in length. They're just big. They have big legs and very strong upper body, and it's amazing. Some of them are physical specimens. They're just absolutely ridiculous. In the time that you played in the 90s, are the kickers different now than they ever were when you played? The punters? The punters, yes. So Mark Royals was at Pittsburgh when mm -hmm. I first started. He was six foot six. Then I was six foot five, and I think Rick Tootin was probably six foot four, and everyone else was smaller. The trend now, we coach punters back in Australia. We see so many six foot four, six foot five kids that are coming over to go to college. And Sav Rocker, who had a great Australian rules career, and then he came over and played at Philadelphia and also at Washington. Sav, six foot five, played at 260 pounds. He's legit. We're not going to catch one of those returners, but if we do, we're going to hit him like a linebacker. So that was sort of the obligation that was bred into me when I first started, that if you get a chance to put your head in there, these guys do it every play. So if you get to do it a few times a season, you should do it. And I had a lot of fun doing it. I remember Sav Rocker. I'm a Giants fan. I grew up watching him when he was with Washington and with Philly in the NFC East. And another one when he was on the team was Steve Weatherford, another big guy. So maybe he got some yeah. of that influence from you. Yeah, but see, Steve's only six foot two. Steve came and spent a lot of time with John Carney, who was my mentor at San Diego. And he mentored Steve and really helped him get through the second half of his career. And then Steve went on and had a terrific career in New York. It's a small community, NFL punters. And at any time during the off season, we probably would walk out on a field and most of those punters will come out and have a punt with us. So it's a pretty tight community. And we used to know most of the guys when we 
enjoy playing. You playing Australian rules football, then transitioning to the NFL. What were some of the biggest adjustments, both with coaching and with your technique? The biggest adjustment for me was learning how to wear a helmet and shoulder pads. I mean, we wear nothing. We wear a sleeveless shirt and a pair of shorts, and that's you go out and play football. And then trusting that all the guys in front of me were going to protect for me, and they were going to form that pocket. And all I had to do was take care of my technique on rhythm at the right time, and we would get the ball off. And it was proven so many times. You know, as I got more experience, I had Terrell Fletcher, who was my personal protector for about seven years, and I would see the jersey from another team flash in front of me. I'm in the middle of a punt thinking, where are you, Fletch? And then all of a sudden, Terrell would just fly across and take that guy out in front of me, and we would get the punt off. I think that was the biggest thing for me, was trying to go, if I went on my own rhythm and I don't use up too many yards... I have to trust that all these guys are going to protect for me. It takes a little minute to do that. We are talking to former Chargers and Vikings punter Darren Bennett. Darren, what is it like being presented on the NFL's 1990s all-decade team? Something like that really being a standout as a punter in the NFL in the 90s with some of the best players of the league, and you were considered one of the best in the 90s at your position. What was it like knowing that you had that privilege of being a part of that all-decade team? Someone called me on the phone and said you're on the (laughs) all-decade team and that was it. It's not like we went and played against the 1980s team and see who was best. That wasn't the reason I played the game. For me it was the challenge of playing in two separate professional sports. So the accolades are great and Pro Bowls and all that sort of stuff but it was more about keeping your job every day and fighting off these young guys that came to every training camp trying to take your position. Throughout the 90s you played with the Chargers and you played with a guy in Junior Seau, one of the best linebackers in NFL history. Very sad what happened to him. So what was he like as a teammate on and off the field? The great thing about Junior is Junior Junior did not have to know who I was. He was the star of the team, drafted in the first round. And by the time I got there in 94, he'd been to a few Pro Bowls. And so he came up and he grabbed me. I hit a punt, probably mini camp. It was a bomb. I crushed it. And he came up and he called me the man with the kangaroo leg right there. And then we had Al Papunu and Don Sasa and Junior. And he grabbed me and said, you're one of the Islanders, bro. And I'm like, how do you even know who I am? And he's like, you keep hitting 80-yard punts like that, everyone's going to know who you are. And it really gave me the confidence to be accepted because I was just a dude on the field trying to do my job. And to have the star of the team, Junior, know who I was and bring me in and sort of grab me around the neck and go, come on, man, you're going to help us out. That's how Junior was with everybody. So I'm sad like you are that he's not here anymore. I surfed with him two weeks before he passed and we had no idea what was going on. But we've lost a lot of guys off that Super Bowl team, but he was a giant in Southern California, in the Samoan community. And with us, he was a man amongst boys. So it was great. And I was glad he was on our team and not on the opposition. Who is the most hated guy in Aussie rules footy because I still hate Luke Hodge and did you appreciate punting in a dome? So I love punting NFL balls. They go a mile if you get a good spiral on them so I really love it. When I was playing in the 90s I came and played a few exhibition Aussie rules games over here. And the guy that came over and did the promotion right before me was this guy named Mark Jacko Jackson. And everywhere we went, I went and did the promotions the year after and everyone hated the guy. And he came over and he was like a WWE wrestler playing Aussie rules football. So he turned up to do an interview like I'm doing with you guys right now with like a T-bone steak <laughs> on a chain around his neck. And he was calling it a blood sport and he offended a lot, but he loved it. I would say when I was playing Jacko, Mark Jacko Jackson was the most hated guy. And he was very famous for doing a handstand because a guy told him he'd never be a football player while his butt pointed to the ground. So he did a handstand in front of him and then explained to the people afterwards. So he was a bit of a clown, but a good football player at the same time. You went 
from the Chargers to the Vikings growing up in Australia. So you're going to a cold weather city. Now you played in a dome, in the Metrodome, but you had to play against other rival teams in the NFC North that had the coldest stadium. So what was that kind of transition like, especially like Lambeau Field, you beat so, them in the playoffs? I had two sons at the time and we'd just been in Southern California. And I was at the point of my career where Mike Cypress had been drafted to the Chargers. Mm-hmm. So I went and spoke to Marty Schottenheimer at the end of the year. And I said, look, Marty, we think between Steve Christie and I, we've mentored him for the year. We think he's going to punt 10 years, which we were right. He punted 12 years for the Chargers. And so it's time for me to go somewhere else. And so my knees were getting to the point where I wasn't really really sure I was even going to pass a physical. And so the first place I went to was the Vikings and it was so diagonally opposite to living in San Diego. I thought it'd be a great character thing for our kids to spend a couple of years in Minnesota. And it was, they'd still stay in contact with people they met over there. Luckily for me, Mike Tice, our head coach, hated the cold. He grew up in New York, played in Seattle, but literally two games into the season, we'd get our first cold day in Minnesota and he'd go, okay, boys, inside. And we would practice inside for the rest of the year. So the toughest part about Minnesota was driving to practice in the snow, but we pretty much practiced and played inside for 85% of the year. I love Mike Tice, by the way. I met Mike Tice three times. He has a good family. He's a good guy. He's a Long Island native. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Mike Tice. When you look at the league now, and I don't think punch are respected as much as they should be. And as the year has gone by, they've become more important to the league and some of these Super Bowl contending teams. We talk about the Rams last year. They have one of the more underrated punters in the league, but nobody talks about them because of how good the defense is and how good the quarterback was. And he made some of the best punt kicks throughout the playoffs, especially against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. What are your thoughts to the position as a whole? Do you think some of the people in the league don't respect the position as much as they should. Johnny Hecker, who was the punter at the Rams, he's gone across to Carolina. Lachlan Edwards was at Carolina last year and mm-hmm. actually Mike Cypress was the kicking coach there at Carolina. They mm-hmm. switched everything around this year. Lachlan called me this week and said he's going to retire and that was his last year in the league, but Johnny Hecker's gone over there. Johnny was a game changer. I used the inside the 20 drop punt, but really only for inside the 20s. Johnny took that punt and misdirection spiral and he's really made it his own. And so there's other guys that have tried to emulate that but no one did it as well as Johnny. Now, he's getting towards the end of his career and he's probably not as effective as he was. When the Rams were good a few years back, Johnny was an absolute weapon for those guys and his misdirection punts, he would hit a 65-yard punt walking right and punt it to the left sideline with the returner never touch the ball. He'd get a 65 or 68-yard net. That's a massive difference on a 100-yard field when you can get that and have the returner not touch the ball. I'm watching ESPN, NFL Live, and those guys come on and I blame a lot of it really on the executives in the media because really Jay Feely's the only guy that speaks about special teams during games. Mm-hmm. So the conversation was about the charges and they said, we just can't work out why the charges just can't get over the line. They've got a young quarterback who threw for 5,000 yards last year. They've got a great defense with Joey Bosa and those guys there and they were 9-8 and eight last year. And I'm like, no one's talking about the fact their special teams has been 30th in the league since Mike Cyphers retired. They've picked horrible punters they regularly give up 50 and 60 yard returns in a game and so the conversation never really happens about special teams only about offense and defense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I sit there frustrated and pull out what's left of my hair going, that's because you're obviously not looking at the reason. They missed eight field goals during the season. The year after Mike, I think Mike was there, they had a young kid there. He dropped two snaps on punts. He shanked two punts coming out of the end zone, dropped a snap on a field goal, and they were nine and seven. 
So if two of those games they win, they're 11 and 5, they make the playoffs. At the time, they're talking about, oh, the offense did this. There was four losses that you could put on one person's shoulders right there. So I think there is a big conversation about offense and defense, but not many people know about the special teams part of the game. I absolutely agree with you. Yeah, you mentioned Cypress. He had hurt in 2014, really bad injury that happened to him. I feel bad for him because he was very good. The kicking game, though, too, ever since Nate Katie got hurt. How many different kickers did they go through, too? And they were never great either. I tell the story about Mike Cypress. I was doing the pregame show for the Chargers and we're playing against Indianapolis and there's about a minute to go in the game and Peyton Manning and Tom Moore are standing on the sideline and they've got the playbook open like this and Peyton Manning's going, I like this play, I like this play and he's presuming that Mike's going to hit a 45, 50-yard punt. They're going to get a five or eight-yard return and they need two first downs to kick a field goal. They're focused on those guys on the sideline. Mike hits a 73-yard punt and as the ball's in the air, Peyton Manning looks and he closes like three pages of the playbook because <laughs> he couldn't use any of those plays and then he got sacked and then they never got a first down and the Chargers win the game. It was the best punt. I think Mike punted six times. He averaged like 57 yards and he had like four inside the 10. It was ridiculous. So years later, Peyton goes to Denver and Mike said he runs out, he's warming up and Peyton runs right up to about six inches from his face and he goes, damn it, you're still in the league. So for a punter to get in a Hall of Famer's quarterback's head, that's when you know he was such a weapon at the Chargers. The Chargers owned Peyton Manning throughout his career, too. They had that one playoff win. They had the six interception game. Yeah, and unfortunately, Nate Keating missed a couple of field goals. Yeah. And Marty Schottenheimer sat on the ball against New England one year and yeah. against the Jets. It was a bit of a disaster when they got into the playoffs those years. Yeah, that 9 Chargers team was loaded. I'm still shocked they lost to the Jets that year. You got Drew Brees, and you got Phillip Rivers, and you got LaDainian Tomlinson, and it just was man after man after man. You go, this is the best team the Chargers have ever had. And then they just got to the playoffs and played a different game. It was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. That's my Jets. Drew Brees, you got to be a teammate with him as a young player. So what was he like? Drew was terrific. The one person that I would say really had a massive influence on Drew is they brought Doug Flutie in. And what he did was when Drew took over, we were playing against Chicago. Drew stepped in. He didn't have a great game that first game, but you could see Doug on the sideline just teaching him how to play. And I think what he did was he gave Drew the understanding that you don't have to be six foot five to play the quarterback position. The one thing that they used to do every practice is they would play the trash bin and the crossbar game. What they were doing was they were building this really minute accuracy. And if you look at some of the passes Drew threw over his career, there's not many guys that could be as pinpoint accurate as he was. He threw such a beautiful ball. And I think Doug had a huge influence on him in his first couple of years of teaching him how to be a pro. Just don't listen to the outside talk about you have to be six foot five to play this position. Find your own throwing lanes. And he really did. Drew became a real aficionado of how how to move inside the pocket and still know where your throwing lanes were. So I couldn't be proud of what his career was. And I think it was tough when he left the Chargers, but I've talked to Drew about this and I was like, New Orleans needed a hero. And you needed a new challenge, and they found each other at the right time. And look at what he went and did when he was in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. It was terrific. One of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game. One of the top five greatest quarterbacks. And I think if he'd stayed at the Chargers, may not have happened. Yep, I absolutely agree with that. But Philip Rivers came in, and with the knee injury that he had, I think they wanted to move forward with Rivers. And Drew Brees is still very well respected in the San Diego community and the L.A. community because of what he is and what he really gave back to football. And I've always liked Drew. I think it was a real big loss 
lost what NBC did to him. But I think he wanted out of that. But I think it was just so disrespectful. You signed somebody like that, and then you part ways after a year or so. I completely disagree. Yeah, look, I Drew will go on and do no, bigger course. and better things. Maybe he didn't enjoy it. I haven't mm-hmm. spoken to him in a little while. But when he did that shoulder, you could understand why the Chargers did it. But at the time, AJ Smith was hell-bent on building only guys that he had something to do with drafting. And John Butler had drafted Drew. And so it's also why they shortened Ladanian's time at the Chargers, I think. They got into a bit of an argument with their agent. And so once Drew hurt that shoulder, you could see why there was a plan in place to bring Philip along. And Drew's credit, he rehabbed that thing. A lot of quarterbacks may not have rehabbed that shoulder to turn up what he did, and then he played so well afterwards. We are talking to former Chargers and Vikings punter Darren Bennett. We were talking about how important special teams are and punters. I still don't understand how there's only one punter inducted into the Hall of Fame. All these years, and I've always said that they're a little harsh, the community of voters over there in the Hall of Fame, when you look at some of the greatest players at their positions, how is there only one punter in the NFL Hall of Fame. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, look, when Ray Guy was voted in a couple of years ago, 20 of us went. It was such a great brotherhood to go and support him going in because we understood what a significant moment that was. But years and years and years ago, I was spokesperson for NFL International. I went and played in NFL Europe and I was just thankful to be involved. And I met Chuck Bednarek from the Green Bay Packers and they introduced me and said he was a great linebacker. And he goes, you're an Australian? He goes, yeah. And he goes, and you play in the league? I go, I do, yeah. And he goes, what position do you play? I go, punter. He goes, you're not even a real football player. (laughs) When he did that, I understood and it was made apparent to me straight away that punters would just go sit in the corner, be quiet. We don't really want to use you, but there's a rule that on fourth down, someone's got to kick the ball so you better go out there. And so hopefully the last few years, punters making tackles, punters averaging over 40 yards, making huge differences. There's some guys, Mike Cyphers should be seen as a Mm -hmm. guy that would go into the Hall of Mm -hmm. Fame. Shane Leckler from the Raiders had a consistency over 12 to 15 years where he should be seen as someone that should go into the Hall of Fame. Jeff Fiegels. Jeff Fiegels was part of the last of the great directional punters. Feegs could sit there and just paint the sideline. And he wasn't a 58, 57 yarder, but he was super consistent. And he went to the Pro Bowl at like 42 years of age. Mm-hmm. He played 20 years in the NFL. So if you were a linebacker, I don't care if you were average as a linebacker. If you played 20 years in the NFL, they will put you in the Hall of Fame. And so eventually, hopefully, there will be a recognition of the guys that played every position because every position has its own thing. When I ran out on the field every day, I looked at it and went, I can't rush the quarterback. I can't throw 50-yard touchdowns, but none of you guys can do what I'm about to do right now. So I had that confidence that the punting position was my position, and I got injured once in my career. They brought a young kid in to punt that week. It was the worst week of my career because I watched my punt team run out there with someone else standing 15 yards back, and I wanted to punch the kid every time he was out there. So I had that confidence that I couldn't do any of the other positions, but they couldn't do my job either. And so people will have to eventually respect the fact that punting is a part of the game and hopefully will always be that. We need to agree that Devin Hester needs to be in the Hall of Fame. Absolutely agree with it. Ben Graham was staying at my house. He'd been cut by Arizona and his family had gone home to Australia and I had his car and he said, can you sell my car for me? And I said, yeah, sure. So he flew home to Australia and then I get a message and he goes, hey man, don't sell my car. And I go, why? And he goes, Rob Malone just punted down the middle to Devin Hester (laughs) and I'm going to Detroit. And I go, what? (laughs) They said, apparently on the sideline, the coach said, the one thing you cannot do is let him 
and touched the ball, punted out of bounds. I don't care what you do. And he yacked it inside and Devin Hester obviously took him to the end zone. I sent Ben's car up to Detroit and he finished the season up there. But that's how devastating Devin was. At times, you make one little mistake and you better make the tackle because he's bringing it back every time. You were a teammate for a year in 2004 in Minnesota with Randy Moss. What was he like as a teammate? Do you have any good stories of him? I have two sons. One of them punted here at the University of Tulsa and that's why we moved to Tulsa. And we have a son who unfortunately passed away last year. Sorry. William, oh, he so sorry had muscular dystrophy. So on Mondays, I used to take them both in to the practice facility and I'd leave them in the players' locker room. They'd play Madden and do all that sort of stuff while I was in. And then we'd wheel in his wheelchair and then Thomas, we'd go out onto the practice fields and we'd have a kick around and run around and just mess around and I'd just show them the facilities. So I come out after the special teams meeting and everyone else has gone, we've had a team meeting and everyone's in position meetings and I'm walking down to get the boys and I can hear this voice talking to them. I walk, stick my head in and there's Randy playing Grand Theft Auto with my kids. And I'm like, you guys are just going to play Madden. And he goes, no, oh, man, they can play Madden anytime. Let's go. And he was playing Grand Theft Auto with my kids. And so that's what Randy was. Randy, the outside personality of Randy and the teammate personality were two different things. And then the other thing that Randy did, and it's one of my favorite photographs ever. When we first got there, we couldn't get wheelchair accessible seats in the Metrodome. So they put them in the overflow right in the corner of the end zone for preseason, knowing that people would give their seats up and eventually we'd get a wheelchair accessible seat for Will. First touchdown of the season, Randy catches it over his shoulder in the corner of the end zone and he puts the football in my son's lap, in Will's lap and just runs off. My phone blows up after the game. They're like, Will's on ESPN. Randy gave him the football. And I'm like, what? And so I look and there he is on Sports Center. And I said to Randy, did you know that was my son? And he goes, I had no idea. He goes, that little dude just looked like he needed a football. It's one of my favorite photos. And PR got a nice picture of it and they blew it up and Randy signed it to Will. And so they were great mates. So the outside Randy and the actual person of Randy are two totally different things. He was one of my favorite team and pretty good football player as well. Really good football player. And Hall of Famer, first ballot Hall of Famer. Total Hall of Famer. You could tell too. I played against him and Jeff George was the quarterback and he fumbled a shotgun snap and I'm like, oh, we're going to get a sack. And he just picked it up and hauled it as far down the sideline as he possibly could. And I'm like, oh, well, he's throwing it away. And Randy caught up to that thing for a touchdown. Anyone else, that would have been an incompletion. Randy just cruised past our DB, went down. I think it was Terrence Shaw too, who was one of our good DBs. Randy just picks that thing and runs in the end zone. I'm like, oh my God, I've never seen speed like that in my life. It was fantastic. <laughs> Well, that's what you have to do to catch a pass from Jeff George. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of those guys over my career. You just go, that's one of the best athletes I've ever seen in my life. Fantastic. We really appreciate you joining us, Darren. We know you're a busy guy. I hope your knees get better. we definitely like to talk to you again. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. The great Darren Bennett, Speedy. How did you like that interview? A lot of fun. Tremendous, tremendous stories. And all different vantage points. Born in Australia, go from San Diego to Minnesota. Great stories and great connections. I thought he was great. Definitely one of the better interviews that we've had on the show. We've had a lot of great interviews. So to say that he's one of the best, it's just an amazing interview that we had with Darren Bennett. When we come back, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to talk some basketball as the New York Knicks are still in the mix for Donovan Mitchell. But there is a secret team getting involved with that trade, and that team could be on the West Coast. The LeBron Lakers could be involved in a trade with the Utah Jazz and the New York Knicks. When we come back, we'll get into that and the Kevin Durant sweepstakes here on the Weekend Crunch. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. As you know, this is the Weekend Crunch. I'm your host, Daryl Marks, my co-host, Speedy Petey. Remember, you can listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time only 
on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network. Brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Download the World Wide Sports Radio app by going to iOS, WWSRN, or Android. World Wide Sports Radio Network. Well, well, well. Why not bring up the great and powerful New York Knicks? And I say great and powerful because we've been talking about this trade happening for weeks. And it has not happened. And no thanks to Danny Ainge, who likes to make these offers and spin the wheel, make the deal with the Knicks, and it hasn't come to fruition yet. But over the last couple of days, there is another team that has been talked about as a team that could become a third team in this trade talk with the New York Knicks for Donovan Mitchell, and that's the L.A. Lakers. And I know the L.A. Lakers have been trying to get rid of Russell Westbrook's contract. They feel that if they can get rid of Russell Westbrook's contract before the season starts, they can make a move at the trade deadline where they can add another superstar to come and play with LeBron James or Anthony Davis. They have money problems right now because they overpaid Anthony Davis, who can't stay healthy. And LeBron James, who had a fantastic year, he's making a lot of money. And then their bench, it looks like Carmelo Anthony is going to go somewhere else. This is an old bench. This isn't a young bench anymore. And they don't have any young superstars that they've had over the last couple of years, including a Julius Randle, who they had over there when they drafted. I think the Lakers are trying to spin the wheel and make the deal, so they want to get rid of a contract, and they want to get some picks. So Danny Ainge wants to get rid of Donovan Mitchell. He does not want to be there, but Danny Ainge doesn't want to get rid of their lone superstar for just nothing. And they have been trying to steal picks from the New York Knicks. Their story's coming out of Utah. They want seven first-round draft picks. Obi Toppin and Quickly or Obi Toppin and Grimes. And the Knicks are saying it's too much. We'll give you five or we'll give you four. But bringing in a third team, that could help the Knicks keep Obi Toppin, Grimes, and Quickly. And then they could just decide what they're doing with the seven or eight picks, sending maybe two to the Lakers and five or six to the Utah Jazz. That makes the Knicks the winner because they get their superstar. Yeah, they lose a significant amount of picks, but again, they get their pick every other year because of the way the NBA sets up not giving away picks every year. So I think the Knicks are positioned very, very well to get Donovan Mitchell. The question is, what do they have to give up in a three-team trade? I'm extremely encouraged as a Knicks fan because I was the one that was saying for a while, I don't want them to trade Obi Toppin, and I think this is the best chance for that not to happen now because Quentin Grimes and Obi Toppin was the combination that the Jazz were seeking for a while, and Quigley was kind of that first guy, but then once Grimes became more available, with the extra draft picks, that would seem like who they're seeking. Now, if they do this and only have to give up the extra draft picks and maybe take on some of the salary to make it work with Russell Westbrook, then they don't have to trade those other players. That is a big win for the Knicks. We were talking about a chance of you get Quentin Grimes and Emmanuel Quigley as like top-notch bench players in a rotation of Donovan Mitchell, Jalen Brunson, R.J. Barrett, Mitchell Robinson, and then Obi Toppin or Julius Randle, whatever combination of that. And you're not going to have to trade Julius Randle. It seems like Evan Fournier is the other guy they want. I've also heard Derek Rose has been another guy that could be moved to make the salaries work in a three-way deal. And then all of a sudden, you're just giving up the draft picks and maybe having to take on some of Russell Westbrook's salary. The Knicks could do that. The Knicks are no problem with taking out extra money to make it work. But what the Knicks haven't had for years is young talent all at once to go along with other star players. And this is the great combination of getting this both. I really hope this happens so they can stay well-rounded and balance and still have the stars that they need to compete in the Eastern Conference and take that next step. Yes, Donovan Mitchell might be smaller for a shooting guard. He's six foot two. Most shooting guards are probably six five or something like that. But still, that's a great lethal duo of backcourt. You Bronson. still keep Grimes, and that yeah. gives you the depth, and you can move Grimes to that starting position uh, at some points or the backup positions where you can play him as a defensive type yep. of two for the New York Knicks. So bringing Grimes in could give you that depth that you need defensively to help out a guy of Donovan Mitchell's stature. 
So I think it makes a lot of sense where the Knicks are going and what the Knicks want to do, where they can make this team with not only the talent and the superstar talent that they need, but also give them the young depth that they've been craving for years. That really positions the Knicks to be a contender in the Eastern Conference because it gives them that depth that they need off the bench in a Thibodeau defense. It's going to be very interesting in the next couple of days or weeks ahead of us. When does this move happen for Donovan Mitchell, which I know Nick fans absolutely desperately wants, and I know Donovan Mitchell desperately wants. I know he wants to come home. I know his father works for the New York Mets, and Jalen Brunson and him have a very good relationship, as you saw them going to the Yankee and Met game together. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see what happens in the next couple weeks with the New York Knicks. As far as the Brooklyn Nets, the Brooklyn Nets reached out to Kevin Durant's team. They wanted to sit down with him this week and really discuss on where they're going to be and where they're going with this. Are they going to trade him? Does he really want to get traded? Does he want to stay here for a year? Does he want to stay here till the trade deadline and see what they have with Ben Simmons and Kyrie together with him and joining forces? I don't know what it is. We all know that when Kevin Durant says he wants to be traded speedy, it usually means he wants to be traded. Always an unknown with Kevin Durant with where he actually wants to stay, how stable he will be with that organization. I still think he does end up wanting to be traded, but the problem is the stipulations for these trades are very hard to make it work because Miami and Phoenix were the two teams he mentioned initially, and now the Heat don't want to trade Bam Adebayo at all. Tyler Hero, they still don't know what they're doing with, and then Phoenix, they only could offer sheet DeAndre Ayton, so they can't trade him until January, so that will restrict what the Nets could do in terms of trying to trade for DeAndre Ayton to trade Kevin Durant to the Suns, which seemed like the most realistic suitor at the time. Now, Golden State was also mentioned, but they seem out of it now with that. They're trying to max extend Draymond Green now, so I don't know if they're going to do that. They're also trying to trade Andrew Wiggins, so it's a whole mixed bag of what Golden State's doing, and really, there's only been a couple sleeper teams besides that. The Celtics were brought up last week, but I don't think they want to trade Jalen Brown, so they're out of it. There's really no suitors at this point. And I think they're going to have to wait until the trade deadline. If Kevin Durant actually could stay on this team till the trade deadline, and maybe he's happy over there. Maybe the Nets go on this run, and they start to win. If you're a Net fan, you want to see that happen because if Kevin Durant stays there and they start winning with Kyrie and Ben Simmons, he doesn't want out. He can see them winning a championship. Why did he go to the Brooklyn Nets? He wanted to win a championship with his team, with the players that he wanted to play with. When he went to Golden State, it wasn't his team. It was Steph Curry's team, Klay Thompson's team, Draymond Green's team. He was the other player. He was the best player, but he was the other player. He was the fourth guy coming to that team. Now, he joined forces with Kyrie Irving, and then James Harden. It didn't work out. They only played 16 games together with each other. And then you bring in Ben Simmons, who didn't play at all last year when he got traded because he had some mental problem. Now, this year, you expect him to play. You get Ben Simmons on the court. You get Kyrie Irving on the court. And maybe some of these veteran players, maybe you had a Carmelo Anthony, being that he's a free agent, give you that kind of points off the bench, maybe 12, 13 points on the bench. He wants to come home. Carmelo wants to come closer to his family. His son lives here. His son's a prospect, a future big-time basketball prospect. He trains out here during the summer. Maybe if the Knicks don't want him, maybe he goes to play with Brooklyn and Kevin Durant. And maybe that makes Kevin Durant happy. But right now, it doesn't look good. When you hear Kevin Durant's name and what Kevin Durant wants, it usually means he's on his way out. I'm a little less optimistic than you are when it comes to the actual Nets season, if they do keep all three of them, because I still think there will be some drama. I think they're the three Stooges. I don't know who Larry Curley or Moe is, but they're like the Stooges. All three of them. That's a very good analogy for that kind of thing, because Ben Simmons and Kyrie.
Kyrie Irving are in their own world. Kevin Durant's on seven burner Twitter accounts and deciding, oh, I want to be here. I don't want to be here. And we don't know what is going to happen. So I don't know how the chemistry is going to work throughout the season. I'm with you, though, where I think it'll last until the trade deadline and then he'll get traded to one of those spots. It makes a lot of sense. I think the Suns or the Heat at that point are going to make a splash at that point to make it work. I think that would make a lot of sense because then the Suns could trade DeAndre Ayton. They can get rid of that contract. They get add a guy like Kevin Durant or even Miami. Maybe they don't want Bam out of Bayo then. And they say, you know what? We'll make that trade. We'll trade you Bam. We'll trade you Tyler Hero or whoever you want. And we'll add Kevin Durant because Kevin Durant gives us the best chance to win. So it just doesn't make sense right now. And I think if I was Brooklyn, if I was Sean Marks, that would be the best thing that could happen. Talking to Kevin Durant and saying, listen, stay here. Let's see what we have for the first couple of months. And then if you really want to be traded at the trade deadline and we're not good, we'll make that move. We'll trade you wherever you want to go. We'll get as much back as we can for you and we'll move on. I think that makes a lot of sense. But this Kevin Durant story is just growing leg after leg after leg. Even with the Donovan Mitchell story with the Knicks, it doesn't grow legs. The only legs it's growing is that third team being involved where the Knicks don't have to trade away all that draft stock or some of the young players that they have right now. The Knicks are willing to do one or the other. They don't want to do both. So if they can go without doing both, the Knicks will bring in a third or fourth team where it can help them keep the players that they want to keep. So that's what I love about the Knicks right now. The Knicks aren't the center story. It is Kevin Durant and the Brooklyn Nets and Kyrie Irving. They are the clowns. And that's where over the years it hasn't been like that. It usually is the Knicks and James Dolan and Charles Oakley and all the crap that goes on on and off the court. Oh, by the way, Isaiah Thomas. Don't forget about him either. So it's always been the Knicks. But now, all of a sudden, it's the Brooklyn Nets. So if you're a Knicks fan, you should be very happy that you don't have to deal with the crazy clown work of the Brooklyn Nets. When we come back, ladies and gentlemen, we have Chaz and the crew. We are back, ladies and gentlemen, the handicappers of the country, the best in the country. Moneyline Mania here on the Weekend Crunch. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. As you know, this is the Weekend Crunch. I'm your host, Daryl Marks, my co-host, Speedy. Remember, Killer Star Show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network, brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Download the World Wide Sports Radio app by going to iOS, which is Apple, WWSRN, or Android, World Wide Sports Radio Network. I'm back on this segment talking to Chaz and his boys, as we call them, Money Line Mania. This is Moneyline Mania with Chaz and the crew. Mr. Chaz, how we feeling, bud? Doing well. Thank you very much. I know, Jonathan, you just got back from signing up for the contest in Vegas, the big contest, right? Yeah, I did. We went to Vegas on Tuesday, and we signed up Wednesday morning at the Golden Gate, which is a sister uh, casino of a Circa. It's my second year doing it. I'm really taking it seriously this year. I signed up last year. My first year is my bachelor party, but I signed up week one like right after thursday night when friday signed up and on that week one you have to put in your own place and so the next day i go to the kiosk it's not working i call the guy and he's like yeah because the cutoff was three minutes ago so i missed all of week one last year it kind of puts a real damper i just spent a thousand dollars to not get a play up but i'm back this year you know we're doing it the whole way i'm a proxy signed up and circa millions for there's i think there's going to be a few more people this year as well because last year was coming off that covid so not as many people were kind of traveling to vegas you have to travel to vegas and sign up in person so last year i think there was about three thousand three thirty five hundred people 
I think this year we, they might crack 4500 and maybe get to 5000 So they up the pool. I think it's going to be about $5 million in guaranteed money. It's a good contest. They run a top-notch casino there. So I'm back in it, and we were in Vegas for three days and had a little relaxation as well. It's a big deal. The Super Contest used to be over at the Westgate, and then they built Circa, and he upped them one with the Circa Millions, and they do quite a few entries, and it's pretty exciting. And you pick five every week. you got to pick your five best NFL plays, and at the end of the year, somebody walks around with seven figures. It's a million dollars top prize, but I know that they kind of wait to see how many people enter. Last year, I think it was top 85 or something that got paid. This year, it's probably going to be closer to 200 to at least get your money back or make a little bit of profit. The cool thing is they also do have the worst record, and of course, you can't just pick three weeks and stop picking you have to pick all your games every week and the worst record also gets a hundred thousand dollar payout and then they do a quarterlies and the quarterlies are so week one through four whoever's number one in that little segment gets 250 week five they do the same thing to week eight so they have four of those throughout the year so you have a chance even if you're not doing well through the contest like you could get hot at the right time let's say week 13 18 they do that five weeks at the end and you just run hot you can make 250,000 and still not cash in the whole contest just depending on if you get hot at the right time they offered us so many different ways to kind of make your money or make some money we had one year we entered a couple of them one of them was the college one and guys i'm not kidding you after like three weeks, if we had just bet or give the opposite team of the teams we bet, we would have been in first place. At least we put our entries in. Yeah, when you get shut out the first week in a 17-week contest, that's a 8% or whatever of the entire, 7% or whatever it is of the entire year. It's an uphill battle from there. But good luck, and we'll be talking throughout the season. Yes, sir. Are you entering? No. The contest, I gave them about two grand, maybe 2500 I realized I'm just not a contest guy. I bet quarters. I bet team totals to put that emphasis and then get frustrated. And both Wes last year and John were in the contest. So we talked about it every single week on Sports Betting Weekly right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. John had a good start. He was kicking butt. And then all it takes is that one, one in four week. And it seems like the guys that win it, they have that year. And we all had years like that, guys, where whatever you touch is right. Some years it's not like that. But if you're going to have a year to be like that, it's the year you enter the contest. That's for damn sure. And hopefully you win. I'm all about people making money. I'm just not one of those guys that will uh, put all my marbles into one pile of you-know-whats and put myself at risk to lose it all. It's a lot of money. It's four digits. It's always fun, too, because it's always the summertime. You've got to go there to put your bets in, and that's when the pools are hopping in Vegas, and it's a thousand degrees out, but the pools are hopping, the clubs are hopping, so it's a fun time, and you kind of write it off if you do lose because you had a good time getting your ticket in. I know you're a club guy, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. The, I couldn't imagine old, you dancing in a club. The old days. <laughs> disco king. I'm going to call in you. The old days. You're the yeah. disco king. I would love there to see go. you in a club going out with your wife, doing some disco dances with the Bee Gees. I could see that. <laughs> the 70s were a good time. I wasn't alive for the 70s, they were. Well, they were a good time. I may be paying a little bit more interest on that good time I'm than sure. I thought I would be, but it is what it is. You got to pay the piper if you're gonna dance right no absolutely i'm a dancer i know all about it and i do entertainment all the time i like to entertain be careful i might be dancing on this table before you know it but anyways (laughs) we've got work to do boys are you guys ready yeah you know what jonathan has been really on a tear with the mlb this year and i don't know if you saw it jonathan on social media but there was some guy talking about don't tell me your record tell me what you've wanted jonathan at one point with his props i think he was hitting 50 percent, so he lost as many as he won but he was up like 30 years 
units, and if you're betting $100, that's 3K. Props have been good. I kind of found a little home run niche. It's kind of seen matchups. You only have to hit one every five home run props, and you'll make some money. I hit a plus 1,000, plus 700 on Austin Hayes against the Nationals. Finding the right niches, and then I think I went on like a 10 and 1 K prop. Those are typically a little bit more. Sometimes they can be a little bit juicier, but K props have been nice as well. Just all around in the MLB this year, I'm over at Vegas Insider. I am the number one capper. I'm up 35.13 units just on one unit plays per game. And I've just been seeing the ball really well, taking some shots with the underdogs. We took a shot a couple of days ago with the Rockies at plus 270. That didn't pan out for us, but it wasn't something that I was really sweating just because now that I'm up, I can play around a little bit. I have a little bit more money to kind of take more chances just because I have been doing so well. I can kind of get exotic with my plays. We talk about it all the time in terms of underdogs especially with Hector in soccer because when you bet dogs you could lose two out of three and win if you catch Kershaw and bet against him on the night that he loses three to two and you get 270 for your 100 and you lose the other two games 100 bucks each you're up 70 bucks for the day. Or always Jacob yeah. DeGrom starts that the Mets don't score for him. That's exactly why I gave you that score. That game was a weird one because he just lost against the Nationals 4-1 to DeGrom. This one I did not have the courage to take in. That was the game right after the Padres made that trade. So that was the first game without Soto, without Bell. And then that was DeGrom's first start back, which so you should have already known he was going to be on a pitch count. He wasn't going to go deep. I didn't. The pool pin kind of blew it there. But for whatever reason, DeGrom does have a history, I think. If you were to bet on every single game that DeGrom has started, he has like a 1.99 career ERA in the last like five years. But if you bet $100 on every game that he started, you're down by 20 units. When he pitched for the Mets, he was 500. But the bottom line is, he ain't 500 in the first five innings. And how do I know that? Because I bet him in the first five innings. If you go with him in the under and you split, if they lose, if they don't score for him, like you said, Petey, he only gives up one or two runs. But he's playing Sunday. He's pitching Sunday. And he's one of the games that I have on here. I've got two baseball games for Sunday and a Canadian football game for later this evening. I like the sound of that. You guys are very good at your Canadian football picks. Wes is over 80% of CFL picks every single year. We had a couple weeks where things that you didn't see happening happened, but as Jonathan said, sometimes you see the ball better than other days. When's your baby due? We're looking at October 20th is the due date. Baby's growing a little bit faster than uh, normal, so they said it's looking about two weeks before that. We're kind of in the wait and see. She just hit 29 weeks, and so we're excited. I bought all the crap, the crib, and nobody tells you how expensive a baby is. But we're prepared. We have everything we need. It's only going to last another 20 or 30 years. Don't worry about it. It'll be an adventure, but uh, we're excited. It's October 20th, official due date. Wes had his son last week, and hopefully we'll be here. Congratulations to Wes. We congratulate you guys, but we know your wives are doing most of the work. Yeah. Trust me, she lets me know about that, too. So, yeah, I got a couple games for Sunday that I'm looking at. First off, I just want to say I think the Padres, that's what you want to see out of a team that just is – we're going to win it and we're trying to win. They really went out and got guys. They got guys. Soto, in my opinion, not going to be a popular comment. I think he's overrated. He bats 240. I know he has the ability to pop. I understand what he brings to the table. He did win the MVP in the World Series and he was just 19 years old. I just don't know. He's not having a great year and you just don't see a guy that makes an all-star team and then gets traded that same year. It's never happened for anybody 25 and under. And he did it this year. He really wanted out of Washington. I think the Padres were really smart in grabbing Bell as well. He's batting 300. He's having a 
great year. And then under the table, they got Brandon Jury. I was actually like, hey, when did that happen? It, it kind of like snuck in. And then we see that they're playing the Dodgers this weekend. Pretty much been underdog the entire time. And I understand it because, of, you know, the Dodgers have this lineup that's just strong. They can hit. A lot of people pitching is really good, but Friday night, Gonsolin pitch, and Sunday's going to be Tyler Anderson. But I think those are a couple of the guys that I'm going to look to kind of start fading, picking your spot to fade. I think they overperformed in the first half of the year. So those are going to be guys that I'm going to look to kind of see what spots I can find. I think the Padres are going to be live anytime this year. And if you can get them at anything close to plus, if they're plus money, I think they're automatic trail. If they're anywhere minus 130 or lower, I think it's an automatic bet. So I'm going to be looking to take a lot of Padres coming up the rest of this year. They're going to be a really good, I think they could win the World Series. And I did place a little future on them in Vegas. I got plus 1350. They're really going to be live at any time this year. The town is definitely buzzing. And it'll be interesting to see what happens. If they go up and get swept in L.A., <laughs> town will be buzzing the other direction. But it's a situation where you have to pick and choose. You can't maintain. You look at the, the Yankees. What they're doing is really kind of unheard of. You really can't maintain that whole push, the whole 162 games. You're going to find swoons. I'll never forget the one, the one year I was actually in Vegas to sign up for the Super Contest. There was a young kid, and the Dodgers had just lost back-to-back games at like minus three 40 or something like that. And we're sitting at the bar. It's quiet because it's early in the morning. And he says, oh, you know what? I'm betting the Dodgers because they can't lose three in a row. And they ended up losing like five in a row. And that's the kind of thing where if you let that money ride, you could take $100 and turn it into five grand in a week. I think the Dodgers right now, at least, are always going to be priced super heavily. I found it surprising that minus 160 on Friday night. I get who they have, but I think other teams are going to get really undervalued when they play the Dodgers. And at your own risk, you can't just pay the Dodgers every game because you're going to you'll lose a lot of money but there's definitely going to be some spots this season uh, a couple teams you know i think the milwaukee brewers that might be a team to kind of start looking at i found their trade deadline it's really weird they traded away their all-star closer they're number one in their division and i don't think they got anything in return for that they might be a team I, you know we could start fading but they also still have a lot of good guys in their bullpen still but i think that might be a team to start fading and we just saw them get swept by the pirates and there's a couple other teams that i think you're always going to get value sunday look at the orioles shout out to baltimore that is my team and i'm excited i'm going to look at them a lot i think initially i was really upset when we created trey mancini i believe in mike Elias and sig these guys are proven winners. Sig went to the Cardinals in 2005 as their primary statistician. Elias came there in 2011. They win a World Series. They both hit head to Houston in 2012 and Elias says, I'm bringing my guy Sig. They go, they win a World Series, make a couple of appearances and now they come to Baltimore and they're making moves. The Cardinals, from the time that Sig was there in 05 to 2012, not one team had more than half of the MLB players that he drafted and made it to the big leagues. It was just incredible what he runs there and how he runs that program. And the Orioles traded away a closer, traded away Tram Mancini, and they're still finding a way to kind of win games. And they're always valued, especially in the coming weeks. We're going to play a lot of the Yankees, a lot of Red Sox, a lot of Rays and Blue Jays. And they're just going to be a team that, again, 
take your spots because they're going to be big dogs in these games for a reason. The Yankees can hit 10 home runs in a row and the Blue Jays can mash and we understand that. Pick your spots, but you're going to find a lot of good spots with them at plus 140, plus 160, plus 130. And if you just win, go one and one, you're up money. So I'm going to look at the Orioles on Sunday as well. I think that minus 145-ish, minus 150 is not, not too bad of a price. So I think a lot of people are worried about the Yankees obviously losing King. Their bullpen hasn't been as good as it was in the first half. We expected this to happen. They weren't going to win every single game. They were the hottest team in baseball. I do believe they'll go on another streak where they'll win 9 out of 10 or something like that. But right now they're not hitting, and they're having problems in the middle of their lineup. Giancarlo Stanton is on his way back, and when he gets back into the lineup, I think he'll give Judge a little bit more protection, and I think we're going to see this offense really start to spurt again. But where the Yankees are, a lot of people are worried about them. Yankee fans are very frugal fans. It's so what are you doing for me now? There's still a double-digit lead in first place in the AL East. Your offense is going to get back. Everybody goes through kind of highs and lows. When you get John Carlos standing back, you're going to start hitting. Playoffs are definitely fine. I think where you're going to get into trouble is maybe that bullpen. You lost a couple arms for the year in the playoffs. That's when it really matters. Is your offense going to be strong? But they also enough? added some arms, too. And Savarino will be back in the playoffs. They're going to move Savarino to the bullpen. Losing King is a significant loss. One of the best players in their bullpen all season long. And losing him for a significant injury for his elbow. It was one pitch and he was like, I need somebody to look at it. And then he was out. I also saw Chapman like he pitched in the seventh inning game. They kind of moved him out of the backhand roll. But if he can find that fastball and location again, like I saw him pitch nine pitch six innings and then he was out. He's still that guy that he's got the power. He can hit his spots. He can still kind of get in there and shut some teams down. Like I'm not worried about the Yankees. I wish them the worst. I hope they don't win a lot of games. At the end of the day, like they've been a good moneymaker for me this season. I've got the Yankees winning two out of the three games against the Cardinals this weekend. I really think that the Yankees are going to start to pick up the pace. Obviously, they're playing Boston next week, and then they're going to be seeing Baltimore. I think this is a good chance for the Yankees to really pick up some wins and, and get back into the groove of things. And Even though I think Baltimore's playing well, I have a good friend on the Baltimore Orioles that got called up in Vespi, the relief pitcher. I know him personally. Nice. I think they have a good future. They have a lot of good young players, and I think the Baltimore Orioles in two or three years are going to be on the top of that division with the Yankees and the Red Sox. Right now, as we speak, they're the number one team in terms of money made. If you bet every single baseball team every single day this year, they track what you would have made based on the odds. And Baltimore, you're up over $2,100. And it's crazy because the Yankees have won 70 games, but they're always minus 200, minus 250. So you're not getting any value. And that's why the Orioles, are, for me, are always going to be bet on this year. Jonathan and I have been talking about the Orioles for six years now. I'm appreciating this because there was a couple times where he kept looking for those spots but they were losing 110 games that year there were no spots to find no spots to find it was uh, and they were always plus 200 and it was really tough i think if i, if I found a spot it was usually against another bad team you know it was just against somebody else is just as bad and they might have a spot here but and every year i do this i always look for that team that really can start winning games i did that with the cubs two years before they made the world series but they had some good wins that year that was when you could see that they were starting to turn things around I just kind of followed the Cubs a lot. They were always underdogs, and they were winning a lot of games for me. And I was always getting plus, plus money. So every year, you got to find that one team that kind of surprises. The Mariners did that. They went on a 14-game winning streak. And I think when they got to eight, I only gave out four of them on Vegas Insider. I'm just riding a, a trend. I'm not doing any work. I'm just I'm just going to ride this streak till the wheels fall off. Started at game nine. I just Every game, I was Pete. betting. 
Panthers every Petey, day. did he listen to us last week, or uh, didn't we say the same exact words? Oh, yeah. And it's not just baseball, as everybody knows. It's any sport. That's what I do with college football, with the NFL. I just pay real attention early, and I'm looking, okay, who's that team? Who's that team? And it may not be, because in baseball, that one and a half makes a big difference in the point spread. In football, you're pretty much going to be talking point spread, not money line. But it doesn't matter. You get a team that goes off and they start 12-2 and two against the spread, and you were on it from day one, that's a nice feeling. It doesn't matter that if they're 6-6 six and six or 6-8 six and eight or 7-6 and six or whatever the record is, because you're not betting the record. You're betting with the points. Yeah, you got to jump on them. One of my buddies on another site as well, but he jumped on. With the Mariners game, game number 15. And I was like, I hate you. I blame you. You jump on the only game you hit the series and they lose. And prior to that, he jumped on the Orioles game 11. He single-handedly broke two streaks. <laughs> a 10-game streak and they lost. A 14-game streak and they lost. And that was the only time he bet on those teams the entire time of the streak. So I blame them a lot. Baseball is one of those sports. I think in football, you can. there's spots. There's definitely spots where you can. This is a fade opportunity off a big win, maybe a little bad spot. There's definitely like those areas in baseball. You really want to fade if a team's losing six, seven, the Angels. I was fading them. I was fading them. They were just losing every game. Same thing. You can fade the losers and trail the winners. And that baseball, that's definitely a, a way to make some money. Just kind of finding out what's happening and kind of going with their gut and just kind of seeing, you know, how far they can take that streak. If they would have won game 15, I would have been on game 16 and 17 and so on. When these teams are doing what they're doing, you aren't handicapping anymore. It really nice. It You're saying, hey, you know what? I'm going all in on this team. I don't really care who they're playing. I'm not going to look. I might glance at the pitcher if it's baseball. I might glance at the weather if it's football. Because if you got a team that's covering every week and they're giving seven and now they're giving nine and now they're giving 11. And you remember the NFL guys used to be never double digits. Now 17 points is something you see on an NFL point spread. It's crazy. But yeah, that's the other aspect of catching those streaks is you don't have to handicap. You're just Betting the same team every single night. Yeah, that's why I didn't give out on Vegas Insiders because I feel cheap doing that, right? So uh, there's a couple games where I really did give out. I like the game. But other than that, when I'm just riding a streak, I'm not going to give that out because I'm not really doing any work. That's cheating. I got one more game on Sunday, and it's going to be fading the Red Sox. They just haven't proven anything to me. I think they have a lot of problems in their pitching. They have a lot of problems in the bullpen pitching. I don't like their lineup. They got a couple guys that can really hit Xander Bogarts, obviously, J.D. Martinez when he's in the lineup. But other than that, like, they just don't impress me, and they're always, always laying juice. Uh, they were minus 140 a couple of days ago against the Royals. They're going to finish out the series on Sunday. I'm not a big fan of Cutter Crawford. I, I kind of saw him pitch a couple games. Doesn't really have electric stuff from what I saw. I kind of, in a weird way, like the Royals have been competitive, even after getting rid of Penintendi or competitive enough to take him as a good underdog price, and that's usually what they are. So I'm going to be looking at, at taking them on Sunday as well. Let's keep going with my baseball. I Again, whenever possible, I'm going to look at the New York teams because, you know, I got to go over a ferry to get to you guys so I know where you live. And so I got both New York teams on Sunday. I've got the 215 Eastern Yankees at St. Louis and the 410 Eastern Atlanta at the Mets. I don't look at games with TBDs. I'm not looking at players. I'm looking at pitchers. I know when I find a pitcher that I like that's pitching well, 
that if I lose the game, and a lot of times I don't, but if I lose the game, it's probably not going to be his fault, or it's going to be after he came out. And that's why if you see me put a dime on a game, you know I've got money on the first five innings as well because I don't understand people that don't do it, especially if you're playing pitcher. So I've got Montez and, and Wainwright, and uh, Montez is 4-9. He's got a 3-18 ERA. He pitched against the Yankees. But he wasn't on the Yankees when he pitched against the Yankees. He was on Oakland. But it was really funny when Drury hit his grand slam and first at bat for the Padres on MLB. They had his picture with the Reds hat on top of his head. So I thought that was pretty funny. Talk about making a good impression of your new employer, huh? So, yeah, so he pitched against the Yankees. The Yankees won 2-1, to one, but he had a, a nice outing. In his three starts in July... He only went nine innings because he had a real short start in one of the games. But he only gave up 12 hits, four walks, three runs, two home runs. So then I looked over at Wainwright. Now, I don't know how old is Wainwright. He's been around for a long time, it seems like. He's 39. Zane Ake got an ERA 311, a whip of 1.19. In his last two, though, 14 innings, 11 hits, not a walk, and one earned run. And, And if you think about that, he threw 205 pitches. So what I'm doing is I'm taking this game for the first five innings under. I'm not going to play the game under and then a little bit on the first five innings. I'll play the first five innings under and then a little bit on the game. And then I'll hop in and whenever I bet teams that can score, and I bet the under if I cash that under. And it doesn't even always work about cashing. My point, guys, when I start looking at a game to say, now I'm going to start betting the over is the top of the third. I let them go two and a half innings. By the time they go two and a half innings, if it doesn't look like I'm going to lose that under bet, then I pounce on the over, and I normally can get an over that's maybe eight or seven and a half down to five and a half or six. So then I'm sitting on bets with basically a three-run middle. And in baseball, what do you think, Jonathan, a three-run middle? You're going to take that every day or what? It's a lot of runs in a baseball game. So Oh, man. Sometimes I look at calling scores, but on this one, I'm just hoping that these guys do what they do early and it gets to the fifth inning and it's one to one and then I hope it opens up and the later game Atlanta at the Mets Strider I I actually looked at Strider on a game when he was supposed to pitch I guess I think against Philly but it got rained out but he pitched at Atlanta July 12th he went 4.2 innings against the Mets Five hits, three walks, an earned run in a 4-1 to W. But in his last two innings, he's only gone 12 innings. He struck out 19 guys in 12 innings. Six hits, two bases on balls, two earned runs. And in 12 innings, I don't know, two earned runs is a pretty good ERA. 98 and 90 pitches he pitched. The Grom's coming back. I'm betting this the same way. Now, if you can find a place that'll let you parlay the first five innings, this is a perfect time to do an under-under parlay, root for the pitchers, and hope that uh, DeGrom does what he did last time. And then, again, live action is such a big part. We talked about it with the contest. In any given day, 70% of my bankroll is live action. I bet a little bit to start. If I'm right, I take it. And if I'm right, I hop on. Or if I'm wrong, I bet against it. Or sometimes I just walk away. Sometimes you've got to walk away because you can't be chasing good money with bad money. You, you made a mistake handicapping. We're all human. I mean, Jonathan goes on a roll. He's still not banging 80% very consistently. Nobody is. <laughs> not consistently. I will have stretches, though. I will tell you that. I, I finished college basketball over February and March. I, I went 83% over February and March. Off well, March I'm, I'm on a roll right now. <laughs> Those Vegas Insider articles. I'm making more money betting on the teams that I'm putting in the article than I am making for writing the article. How cool is that? <laughs> all right. 
so the last game tonight, it's Saturday Night Football. This now, here's the thing. This is CFL football. It counts. It's real football. The guy that's behind center when the game starts will be the guy, unless he gets hurt, that's behind center when the game ends. These games count. This isn't fake football. This is real football, and you have to embrace it because it makes summer so much better. It is Edmonton at BC. BC lit them up the first week. They beat them 59-15. to the very first week. They're given double digits. It's almost impossible to not bet BC in this spot. However, here's a game where I'm going to sprinkle to start the game. And honestly, I'm going to hope the other team scores first and then I can hop on BC minus four for the game because really at the end, whether you're right in the beginning or you're right at the end, I'm always going to choose being right at the end. Well, we really appreciate you guys as always. Moneyline Mania is always something that really stands out to the fans here on Long Island and they love the handicap information that you give. So thank you for joining us, guys. Always be cashing. As everybody knows, that was John and Chaz. Chaz and his handicappers are some of the best in the country, so I'd like to thank them as always. When we come back, what do we got, Speedy? Crunch time! Here on the Weekend Crunch. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. As you know, this is the Weekend Crunch. I'm your host, Errol Marks. My co-host, Speedy Petey. Remember, you can listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time, only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network, brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Download the World Wide Sports Radio app on iOS, WWSRN, or Android, World Wide Sports Radio Network. I know all the fans are waiting for this segment as we do this every week. Speedy, what do we got? Crunch time! It's time for Crunch Time! All right, we'll start with baseball, MLB trade deadline. We're talking about the Padres being the most active. Buy or sell, it will be them and the Dodgers in the NLCS. I'm going to sell it. I think the Mets, with their pitching, with Scherzer and Jacob DeGrom, I think they are two quality pitchers. You got to get through the Mets first, and I think pitching with that kind of pitching, with that dominance, if they can stay healthy, they're going to challenge both teams. You can have the great lineups, but if you have great pitching, you could shut down great lineups. So I'm going to sell that. I'm going to buy it. That was my pick at the start of the season. I believe in the Padres Redemption Tour. I think the one team that might be able to throw a monkey wrench into it could be the Cardinals, just with the like the ceremonial aspect of the Albert Pujols, Adam Wainwright, Yadier Molina final year type thing. And they do have a good track record against the Dodgers in the playoffs. That would be the one spoiler, but those two teams are just so loaded. And the Dodgers are up for redemption too, the way they lost last year. So I am going to buy it. All right, buy or sell. The Jets will make a trade for Jesse Bates if the Bengals can't sign him. I'm going to sell it because I think right now where the Jets are and the way they're positioned, after giving Kawan Alexander that one-year contract, the Jets are going to want to re-sign him in the offseason. And with C.J. Mosley not knowing what they're going to do with him, his contract, if he's going to take less or renegotiate the deal, I don't know if they're going to have enough money to go into the offseason and add some pieces that they're going to need moving forward in next season's run. I'm going to sell it. Yeah, I'm going to sell it too. I think the Jets are not one that I think you're going to want to trade all those draft picks to make it work. The Joe Douglas, we've seen him stockpile draft picks. I do think Cincinnati will end up re-signing him anyway, but this is if they can't re-sign him. And I do think their other teams are going to be a little more active, thinking that maybe Bates is a missing piece because safeties aren't valued as much. So I am going to sell it as well. All right, buy or sell. Draymond Green will get his max extension from the Golden State Warriors. Uh- 
It's not going to happen. I'm going to sell it. There's no way in hell they're going to give him an extension. No matter how good he is, I think he's on his way out after the next two years. So I'm going to sell it. Yeah, I'm going to sell it too. I was mentioning when we were talking about the NBA Finals that it looked like a younger Golden State Warriors team. The more prominent players became Andrew Wiggins and guys like Jordan Poole. Not as much the splash brother type core. Even Clay Thompson, I was starting to worry, regressed in some areas too. So I think Draymond Green is going to go seek money elsewhere. I think somebody will give it to him just with his playoff experience and defense, but I am going to sell that. It will not be the Golden State Warriors. All right, buy or sell. Francisco Alvarez will be called up by the Mets in the month of August. Oh, absolutely. They need a catcher. Their catcher prospects over the years have been absolutely horrendous, or they've gone somewhere else and done better. Alvarez, I think, is a star. He's a stud. He's the number one prospect in all of baseball, so I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy it, too. James McCann can't hit and can't stay healthy, and you've got Tomas Nito, whose defense has gotten a little bit worse this year. He's still throwing up base runners, all right, but that doesn't really matter as much as today's game with those less stolen bases, so I'm going to buy that Alvarez does come up. All right, buy or sell. Lamar Jackson will get more money per year when he does sign than Kyler Murray. I would say yes. I will buy that, and I'll tell you why. Because every single year we see all these different contracts And all these different quarterbacks get those contracts. And it's always higher when the next quarterback gets that offer and gets that contract. So I'm going to just predict that that's what's going to happen. I'm going to buy that. I am going to sell it. I think it's not going to be as much as $46 million a year. I don't think the Ravens are going to give that kind of contract. I know Lamar's going to want to try to push for that. But I do think the Ravens will come to an agreement where they make it work for the team aspect. Because they are one of the best teams in the league. But they're also one of the more, I guess, stingier front offices. They're not going to try to swing for the fences like that kind of thing. So I am going to sell that. All right, buy or sell. Carmelo. Anthony will sign with the Golden State Warriors. I'm going to sell that. I don't think he goes out west. I think he wants to go closer to his son and his family over there in New York. I think it really is more of a chance of him going to the Hawks or maybe the Knicks or the Brooklyn Nets. I can't see him going out west. He's been over there all this time to the Lakers this year. It didn't work out with the Lakers. I don't think he stays out west. I think he goes closer to New York, so I'm going to sell it. Yeah, I'm going to sell it, too. I think he will stay local as well. Knicks, Nets, another contending team that might emerge in the East. He might even not even start the season on the Maybe team. Miami. Maybe Miami, yeah. I think he might even sign later, not even start the season. I'm going to sell it as well. All right, one more. Frankie Montez will be the Yankees ERA leader at the end of the season. Right now, Nestor Cortez leads at 2.56, and then it's Montez at 3.18 and Garrett Cole 3.56. I'm going to sell that. I think it's going to be Nestor. He's had a very good season. He's pitched very, very well. He's been as good as any pitcher when it comes to ERA in all the baseball and it's going to be hard for somebody to go up a significant amount to the threes. I don't think Montez will get into the twos. I think it'll be low threes. So I'm going to sell that. Yeah, I'll sell it too. I think it'll be closer than people expect though because Cortez hasn't been the like Cy Young candidate that he was probably in May or June. He's hit a little bit of a slump but I can't see him doing it forever. I do think it will be close. I do think Montez will get under three. I can even see him getting a 2-8. I don't think he'll catch up right away where he leads the team but I do think he finishes ahead of Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole's hit a little bit of a rough patch too. I think he'll bounce back in September. Garrett Cole will be fine. He'll be fine. But I think Montez finishes with better ERA than him, but not Cortez. I will sell as well. Ladies and gentlemen, that was our show. Shout out to the great Darren Bennett. He was sensational. What a great interview. One of the better interviews we've had on the show. Told us all these crazy stories. And he got to know a little bit about Randy Moss and how good of a person he is on and off the field. So sensational, sensational stories from Darren.
Aaron Bennett. If you missed that, check out our app and check out the replay of the interview. He was fantastic. Shout out to the Moneyline Mania team with Chaz and the crew. They were sensational. Check out their picks. They are at 81% with us during every single week since we've had them on week after week. It's been seven months they've been on our show. They've had a couple of weeks where they haven't been on the show, but when they're on, they're almost pinpoint right. So shout out to John and Chaz for joining us today. And shout out to you, Speedy. Happy birthday. We're going to celebrate your birthday Sunday. We didn't really get a chance to do that in the last couple of weeks, so I'm very excited to celebrate your birthday. Mm -hmm. Hopefully everybody is drinking a lot of water. Make sure your air conditioning is blasting here in Long Island with the humidity absolutely horrendous. It's a sauna outside. So take care of yourselves. We'll be back next week, so stay tuned as we have new guests, and we are the voices of sports here in Long Island. So keep listening, and we'll be back next week. Good night, everybody.